Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to the new Sunday special series. I might uh, call you all the X-Lapsed Nation because it's time for some X-Lapsed-in-Nation. Yeah, it's not as, uh, doesn't roll off the tongue quite as uh, neatly or as satisfyingly as uh, Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed did, but uh, it's the best I could do. We're talking about extermination. Uh, we're talking about that mini-series I've been threatening to cover for quite a long time now, so finally we're going to do it. But we're not going to start with the first issue. We're actually going to start with the lead-up to it. A five-part series of shorts, or at least I thought they were shorts. We're going to find out that it wasn't quite a short. But a five-part uh, prologue to Extermination here, which took place in five different issues of X-Men comics from the summer of 2018. So... Countdown Extermination appeared in X-Men Gold number 27, X-Men Blue number 27, X-Men Red number 5, Astonishing X-Men Volume 4 number 13, and Cable number 159. Now we'll get the credits out of the way up front here, because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that led up to this, but let's get the credits out of the way. These are all written by Ed Brisson, with art by Oscar Bazaldois, or Bazaldois, maybe I got it right one of those times. Colors, Eric Arshinaga, Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, Travis Lanham, Corey Petit, and Clayton Cowles, our usual bunch. Edits, Robinson, Shan, and White. Cover price, I mean, for, for the issues that they're in, 3 bucks 99 cents each. And these went on sale from May 2nd through July 18th of 2018. So what is this and how did we get there? Well, we gotta go back in time a little bit here. We gotta talk... Right after Avengers vs. X-Men. Now, that's a time that uh, the X-Men got jobbed out to the Avengers, and it ended with Cyclops becoming Dark Phoenix, killing Professor X, among other things. But for our purposes today, we're going we're gonna to focus on that. Because of that, Beast, Hank McCoy, he decided to do something very, very stupid. And what he did is he brought the original five X-Men from, well... Back in the past, maybe it was the 60s, maybe it was just 10 years ago, who knows. But he pulled them back from the past because he wanted to basically talk Cyclops off the precipice. Cyclops was kind of insane at this point. And this also was the entry of Brian Michael Bendis into the X-Men books, which filled many an X-Fan with a little bit of trepidation. <laughs> now the thing about Bendis here, I'm a fan of the guy. I am a fan of the guy. To an extent, to a point here, because uh, I feel like Bendis, he starts a lot of his projects with a sort of, like, humbleness. Alright, I mean, it's little changes, you know, um, kind of low-key, maybe not with the Avengers, but I mean, 
with things like Daredevil, even Ultimate Spider-Man, just there was a humbleness to it, a uh, an earnestness. Even his, you know, most recent stuff, his Superman stuff, it started kind of humble. Um, that unfortunately erodes to just breaking as much stuff as he's allowed to get away with before jamming onto another property. Okay, this is kind of the M.O., this is the pattern of behavior that we've established here for Mr. Bendis and uh, what he has contributed to uh, a shared universe. So, a lot of people were nervous. I was also nervous when he shifted over from the Avengers, because, I mean, the Avengers were the straw that stirred the drink, whether I liked it or not. And a lot of that was due, well, a lot of that was due for to a few reasons here. Uh, Marvel was pushing the hell out of the Avengers, and also Bendis' writing was, was, you know, carrying the load. Now, I often say that Bendis is a fine writer. I just said I, I probably own 90% of what he's put out in as far as superhero you know, content. I, I, I read a lot of his stuff. And I really don't mind him playing within a shared universe or masterminding big events because he's proven that he can do such a thing. But when he laser focuses on something that I'm very passionate about, like the X-Men, like Superman... I start to sweat. And in both instances, the X-Men and Superman, I read his first few issues and I decide, eh, nothing to worry about here. Everything's going to be great. And then I read a few more and realize that my initial fears were more right than I could have ever expected. Suddenly, everybody in the book has the same exact voice and starts behaving in story-facilitating and often out-of-character ways. You know, people used to poke fun at Chris Claremont because uh, he had this insistence on using the strong female character, the strong female protagonist. Uh, if you check out any old, old like, fan mags or industry mags, Amazing Hero, stuff like that from the 80s, it's like they were always making fun of Claremont for that. It's like, uh, it's like they'd, they'd mention a new character and it'd be like, somewhere Chris Claremont saying, is there a reason this couldn't be a female? You know, they'd be making fun of him for his... For his own tropes, right? Now, Bendis has a similar but different tick in that he, all of his characters devolve into nothing more than snark bots. You know, just blank nothings of characters who exist only to be snarky and sassy toward one another. You know, truth be told, when Bendis was announced as coming on to Superman, I was a lot more worried about how he'd write Lois than Clock. If I only knew how badly he'd mangle them both, I'd probably be a little bit, uh, oh, I, I, you need to, you need to be optimistic, right? And, you know, if I get into my own head, I, I'll never be. So I was worried about Lois. Lo and behold, she's a snark bot. She's turned into a passive aggressive, sarcastic sounding board. And that's not characterization. Now, another thing about this, uh, bringing the original five from the past here, the time disparity, uh, you know, the Marvel sliding timescale didn't always work here. I mean, for some of the asides that we'd have uh, to work, we'd have to believe that not only are the original five just the younger versions of the actual five, but that they were literally pulled from the 1960s. There was culture shock explored regarding things like music, TV, even people carrying bottled water, which shouldn't be... Like, quite as jarring for these kids, considering they were, at most, 10 to 15 years younger than their counterparts, right? So, if this was in 2012, then, I mean, they were pulled from 2002, 
We were already drinking bottled water then, right? And I mean, it's kind of an impossible situation, right? You play the cards you dealt. And comics, you know, whether we like it or not, they're about as closed a system as we're going to get in consumable entertainment. We, you know, comics enthusiasts, we know these characters are both the younger versions of the current day characters and also are rooted in where they came from in real time, which is to say the 1960s. We, we get it, right? I mean, folks listening to this show get it. But heaven help anyone from the outside who might have been hornswoggled into trying this book out because they'd be like, what is this? How old are these characters? If, if they don't know what bottled water is, does that mean that Cyclops or, or Jean or Beast, or Jean was dead, but Beast is like 75 years old? Of course not. You know, it's, it's weird. I mean, that's not anybody's fault. It's just something that is, right? Now, I followed along with both volumes of all new X-Men. The first one was Bendis, then there was a, one that was written by Dennis Hopeless. And the further we went, the more that question loomed over our heads. And that question is, when the hell are they going back to where they came from? Right? I mean, this isn't just an X-Men problem. This isn't even a Bendis problem. But the comics industry never seems to know when it's time to pull the plug on something. And so we could have, and perhaps should have, had a tightly written year-long story arc... But instead, it turned into a bloated six-year, mostly directionless, character-breaking and overexposing exercise in diminishing returns. Bendis seemed to realize that, hey, outside of Gene, who became a snarkbot, he didn't care about the rest of the characters. He didn't care about them the way they were, so he had to change them. Cyclops would go off and join his father in space. He'd get his own series out of it. Beast started studying alchemy. Angel got these weird, glowing, fiery wings. Bobby was told that he was gay by Jean Grey. So, if we had to make these changes to these characters, what was the point in the first place? I mean, if you gotta do it, you bring them up, you tell the story, you send them back. Six years is just too damn long. Especially when it involves characters who sort of kind of need an endgame. They're in the way. They're inconvenient. They're duplicates in many cases here. And, they, and they've been changed to the point where they hardly resemble the characters that they were. So we're going to change them. And, I mean, we know that they're not from our dimension. That was established. But we didn't know that then. But you have these total changes in character. And then you send them back in time. And what happens to our current day characters? Very, very weird stuff here. Let's jump ahead to X-Men Blue, okay? Otherwise known as the book that, after 30 years of X-Men fandom, finally sent me running for the hills. And much, if not all of that, was due to the portrayal of the time-displaced original five. Now, Colin Bunn was the writer of that series. And to me, I really can't say too much about the guy. He's written a lot of books that really haven't impressed me much. Off the top of my head, the only thing I can think of from him that I really, really dug was a Green Lantern Corps miniseries from right before Rebirth. Really thought that was some good good work there. But I tell you, Colin Bunn trying to write dialogue in a Bendis way? I mean, that's Ajita right there. That's not... The snark. The over-reliance on snark, you guys. This was just 
too much. Snark should not be the only thing that defines a character, much less an entire team. Sure, they're teenagers, right? We know that. But come on, this was tough to read. Too tough for me, in fact. I hated these characters, who had devolved so much over just a handful of years. When they when they first came back to the present, or when, not to the back to the present, when they came to the present, there was a novelty there. But they they changed these characters so much, and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I went away. I dropped the, the X-Books for the first time ever. I dropped them from my pull list. You know, the first months went by where I didn't have a new X-Men book in my house. And, yeah, I lost sleep over it. It's, you know, kind of sad to say, but it's true. I just couldn't do it anymore. These characters were not recognizable to me. So I went away. But then, Marvel Legacy happened. Now, this was Marvel's answer to the DC Rebirth Initiative, which a year earlier reinvigorated and re-energized so many lapsed fans of DC Comics. We were told that legacy characters would be coming back. Legacy numbering would even be coming back. This would be the return to everything that we loved about Marvel Comics. Only it wasn't. Um, It was a half-hearted outing uh, that, in name only... Chased people like me who had finally walked away. They were coming for me. And they weren't delivering what they what they said they were going to. Now, Legacy kicked off with a series of Marvel Generations one-shots, teaming classic characters with their current iterations. Caused me to raise an eyebrow. Now, the X-Men's contribution to this was an issue that had the time-displaced Jean Grey do some Phoenixy stuff. To me, it was underwhelming and half-hearted. In other words, it was original recipe Marvel Legacy. Marvel Legacy number one came out, a one-shot, an oversized disaster of an issue that uh, I didn't even bother to order from DCBS, but they sent me a copy anyway. Now, that happens from time to time. I'm guessing there were incentivized variants or something on this that led to them over-ordering on this issue to the point where they literally had to give them away. And so, I had it. And since I had it in my lap, I decided to give it a shot, see if it was going to possibly deliver on its promises. And, um, I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but I barely recognized any of the characters in this thing. Which further cemented my take that Legacy was nothing more than a half-hearted Me Too to DC's Rebirth. Which, itself, in hindsight, was half-hearted as well. I felt like the more I read about Legacy, the less interest I had in it. From everything from like the voodoo math Marvel was using in order to resume Legacy numbering at or near a milestone issue for damn near every single book, to the fact that nothing really seemed to change outside of Marvel utilizing you know retro-looking house ads and trade dress. I was still intrigued to see how the X-Men would fare in this new Legacy landscape. Would this be a return to form? Would we drop those color books and go back to Uncanny and, you know, the the legacy books? This is Marvel Legacy, right? Well, no, to both. But oddly enough, in the blue book, there was a callback to the cross-time caper that made me kind of salivate. The team was going to visit different points in X history and the future, including teaming up with the original Generation X and the X-Men of 2099. I tried again. And was chased off again. Uh, 
Now, Marvel Legacy didn't last long. Again, because Marvel's heart really wasn't in it. And I'm projecting. I'm projecting. And so what came next was Marvel Fresh Start. This is an announcement that caused many a rolling of eyes, including my own. And if the Marvel wikis are right, and I mean, who knows if they are, but if they are, then the Dawn of X books that we're looking at in X-Lapsed are actually still part of that Fresh Start initiative. Which, if that's true, does that mean that Marvel's actually managed to hold course for like three years now? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's got to be a record in this, t- in this day and age. I should probably look for some wood to knock on. Anyway, now the book we're going to be discussing over the next several weeks here on the Sunday special, Extermination, is often cited as the X-Men's foray into the fresh start landscape. And we're going to cover that countdown just a little bit. But first, some of my preconceptions about this series. Now my timeline, my personal timeline, is a little bit conflated. Coming back when I did, post-Hoxpox, all I knew was that there was a bunch of stories that sort of kind of set things straight. And initially, I was okay with just acknowledging that and not paying it too much mind, you know? Unfortunately, I'm still me, and I still I have this weird need to know and to be able to talk about everything that happened. And as we talked about here on this channel, I kind of mangled Extermination with previous Sunday special series, Major X. I, I kind of mangled them together. I assumed that Major X was going to be revealed as Kid Cable. Well, I was right if we rearranged those words, right? I mean, he wasn't Kid Cable. He was Cable's kid. So then where in the hell did Kid Cable come from? Well, we're, we're going to find out during this series. Also, where did the Time Displace Original 5 get off to? Well, we're going to learn about that too. At least I think we are. It's funny. Um, not really funny in the ha-ha sense. But uh, a little story about my introduction to extermination. Um, I was running around town back in 2019 when I was first, you know, officially back in the X-Fandom fold. I decided I'd backfill on everything I'd missed because it's kind of my MO. Uh, and I was taking advantage of some Killer Black Friday deals. Um... Which we didn't get this year. Uh, before the world grinded to a halt, uh, our local shops had these just amazing Black Friday sales, often marking down most of their stock to a dollar. I mean, everything on the six-month wall, a dollar. Every back issue under that's marked at under $10 is a dollar. Amazing stuff here. And, uh, boy, I, <laughs> I went to town. And, uh, and so I got caught up on, on the uncannies that I skipped, the Rosenberg stuff that I didn't get. Uh, even Hox and Pox, the stuff that I didn't, the issues that I'd missed of that, got them all there. Uh, got some blues, golds, blacks, reds, everything I sat on out on. And I also excitedly grabbed this one shot called X-Men The Exterminated. Which, in my head, I thought that was the entirety of this extermination storyline. It was not. <laughs> um, indeed, it was something of an epilogue, and it wasn't all that great. But we will. We will cover it in about a month. Now, over the course of the past year and change, I've picked up all five issues of Extermination, as well as a trade collection that I found uh, really, really cheap. Haven't read them yet, but that's what this show's for. So we're going to Extermination. We gotta get there, though. So what is Countdown to Extermination? Well, in doing my research, to put all the pieces in place for this Sunday special series, I learned that there's a series of... 
what I assume to be backup stories called Countdown to Extermination, which leads up to the event miniseries proper. Now, in the advertising, I'm going to read you some quotes here. We're told, quote, Pick up these titles for exclusive post-credit scenes by Ed Brisson and Oscar Bazaldua. Bazaldua. X-Men Gold number 27 by Mark Guggenheim, David Marquez, and Geraldo Borges, uh, May 2018. X-Men Blue number 27 by Cullen Bunn and Marcus Toe, May 2018. X-Men Red number 5 by Tom Taylor and Mahmoud Azrar, June 2018. Astonishing X-Men number 13 by Matthew Rosenberg and Greg Land, July 2018. Cable number 159 by Lonnie Nadler, Zach Thompson, and Herman Peralta, July 2018. Then we get a headline, Witness the Final Days of the Original X-Men. 20 years into the future, mutant kind is on the verge of extinction, and we promise you the X-Men will not survive. But how will this nightmare come to pass? And is it too late to prevent it? Find out in these issues as we count down to extermination. Easy peasy, right? So... Even though we're in the midst of packing packing up house for a move, I spent a good hour digging through my stack of long boxes to procure the five countdown issues in question. Truth be told, three of them, the color books, they were all in the same box. It was actually the cable issue that took me forever to friggin' find. So, I had the books, and as I was getting to do getting down to do my nightly X-lapsed reading, I readied myself for what I assumed to be five short stories. And I figured that together, they'd probably wind up being about 20 or so pages, right? Four per post-credit scene, you know? Well, no, no, it was not that at all. It turns out, each of these post-credit scenes were one single page. Hmm, seems hardly worth mentioning, does it? So yeah, we're about to talk about a five-page story right now. Sorry about that. So how about I quit vamping and we just get to it, eh? We kick things off with our first page that appeared in X-Men Gold number 27. And this one starts at the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach in Central Park, 20 years from now. Headmistress Kitty Pride is telling the X-Men that, uh, well, all hell is about to rain down on them. And that they're likely about to embark on a suicide mission. And with that, they rush toward a group of, what else? Sentinels. And that's it. Now, our second page from X-Men Blue number 27 picks up right where we left off. An older version of the young Jean Grey is hustling some young mutants toward a ship which will, in theory, deliver them somewhere safe. Well, safe is a relative concept in this fiery future, which an older version of the young Cyclops points out. Then, an older version of the young beast, who is mutated into a white-furred, goat-horned critter, is killed while an older version of a young angel looks on. Older versions of the young Cyclops and Jean keep pushing into battle, and that's it. Our third page, from X-Men Red number 5, picks up at Cerebro in Atlantis. C-S-E-A, you see, get it? Here, the original Jean Grey, as denoted by the horrendously ugly costume they gave her in X-Men Red and Nightcrawler, among others, are fighting off Sentinels. We get confirmation that everyone back at the mansion is dead. Jean laments that there's nowhere left for them to run. And that's it. Our fourth page, from Astonishing X-Men Volume 4, number 13, is back at the Xavier Institute, and the only X-Men left standing are... Dazzler and Warpath. Okay. 
Uh, there are dead X-Men strewn all over the place here. It looks like the Fall of the Mutants house ad. That one that always... That's a very eye-catching ad there. It looks sort of like that. There's also like a wall of Sentinels stood on the horizon. Allison and James know that, uh, well, they don't have a single chance in hell of surviving this, but they are X-Men and they valiantly rush into battle anyway. The Sentinels all raise their palms and bada-bing, it's like the cover of Uncanny 142. The last two standing are vaporized, and that's it. Finally, our fifth page from cable number 159 starts us off in present day. We're at a cable safe house located somewhere. Now, as he sits there cleaning his Liefeldian Mark 69 rifle and likely preparing to shove a nuclear D-cell battery into his cybernetic left arm, he gets an alert of an incoming time anomaly. Uh-oh. Cable looks closer and cannot believe what he sees. We don't get to see what he sees, but he cannot believe it, and that's it. That's our five pages. We're all counted down. And we're ready to explore the event miniseries proper, which we will next time. But first, what did we learn here? Well, first things first, I personally learned something. I learned that post-credit sequences aren't quite what they expected them to be. Um, You know, then again, I don't see the movies, so this reference didn't really get a pop from me. Which maybe begs the question, just who were these for? Are they an attempt to get, like, non- or lapsed X-Men readers to pick up books they ordinarily wouldn't? I mean, let's go with that. Let's go with that, just for argument's sake here, and so I can spin my narrative, right? Let's say you were a non- or a lapsed X-Men reader, and you shelled out the 20 bucks to grab these five issues, which gave you five pages of Countdown to Extermination. Would you be satisfied? Would you be inspired to spend another $25 on the Extermination miniseries? Plus the, you know, the the epilogue, the, the Exterminated? I mean, I'd never try to speak for anyone else but me, but if I had to guess, I'd say no. Uh, maybe if all five of these pages were put into one book? Or hell, put all five of them into all five. You know, it might be different. But this one page per issue thing, not my favorite gimmick. And, and I mean, it is a gimmick. Um, and I mean, I spent an hour pulling these things out of the damn long boxes yesterday, so it's not anybody's problem but my own. It just is what it is. Now, if you were a current reader to the Xbooks, of course, this is a value-added thing. It offered a lot of questions and likely made you interested in getting some answers. I know it did for me, but that might just be because I know where, with it, where this is headed. Had I been reading this at the time, I mean, how, how many dystopian X-Men future stories do we need, right? I mean, on its face, this doesn't look any different from any number of X-Men future stories. Yada, 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 Sentinels, yada, yada, Death, yada, 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 Last Stand. I mean, this is kind of samey, isn't it? Truth be told, this is a story we've seen just so many times now. A non- or lapsed reader might take one look at this and think they're reading a repeat or a reprint. I mean, it feels kind of like that. It's so samey. So it's a weird one to kind of put into a vacuum to analyze, isn't it? Uh, as a story, I mean, it's the same as it ever was. I, I can quote our, uh, you know, our theme music here. Same as it ever was. As a lead-in from a sales and gimmick perspective, well, since I'm currently cursed with hindsight, I'm not sure I can say how well it worked. 
as a lead-in purely from a storytelling approach, well, again, I can only speak for myself. Uh, I'm looking forward to finally learning what extermination was all about. So I'm kind of biased toward, you know, the positive. I look forward to hearing what others think, and I'm hopeful that some people listening have read all of this. Maybe some others are just are following along with the show, and maybe some others are just going to be listening along. Please, let me know your thoughts on this series as we work our way through, because I'm very interested in seeing how this, uh, how this all landed for everybody at different uh, stages of their fandom and different uh, levels of uh, X-Pertice, right? But that is where we're going to leave it for today. Um, I think I've yammered on enough, spent about a half hour talking about five pages, which might be a personal record. But uh, I'd love to hear from anybody who has thoughts on this story and these five pages that we covered here. Uh, If you were, maybe you were tantalized by these five pages. Maybe you were turned off by these five pages. Maybe you didn't even know these five pages existed, because as of a few days ago, I didn't know they existed. But I just want to hear your thoughts. So you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at uh, WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can check out blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook about, well, anything you want, where our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I want to thank you all for sharing your time with me on uh, this Sunday or any day you listen to it. It really, really means the world to me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.